jump in. Okay. So uh, first, two weeks ago, Holly talked about King David, talked about David and Goliath. And she really talked about how God poured out his spirit on David to give him the strength and the courage to step in and to walk with God as he took on this role as the anointed one in, in the kingdom. So that was great. And David then survives the, the, the uh, battle with Goliath. Saul tries to murder him a bunch of times. He survives Saul's murderous rage. And then King Saul dies. David is inaugurated as king. He's a man after God's own heart, which like literally means a man who is chasing God and doing his thing. And then he has a bunch of wives and a bunch of kids, including Solomon, who he has by an affair with Beth, Beth, Bathsheba. And then he has Bathsheba's husband killed so that he can take Bathsheba as his wife, which was not his finest moment. And at the end of David's life, he passes on leadership to his son, Solomon. The child he had with the murderous, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He was not the oldest child. He was, as a matter of fact, a, a bastard of the king. He was not born out of a marriage to the king. Um, scandal was written on Solomon. Everybody knew about Bathsheba. Everybody knew the story of where he had come from. And even David... In, in repenting of this great evil that had happened, when Nathan the prophet confronts him, David literally strips his clothes straight from his body and wails naked before God, saying, God, have mercy on me. So everybody knows about where Solomon came from, but he's the one that God chooses to be the first dynastic power in Israel. It wasn't Saul. Saul wasn't able to pass it along to his son, Jonathan. Saul's line was cut. And then David, who was a man after God's own heart, was given this special place as the king who would rule and whose heir would reign forever, which is one of the things we've been talking about. The whole story of the Bible is literally about the heir of King David's throne reigning forever, and that the whole story is literally telling how that happens, and then what this kingdom age of the heir of David, Jesus, looks like. And when Solomon takes on this kingdom, he gets the opportunity to lead. He's a young guy, and he does something that he saw his dad do lots and lots of times. He went to the one place that he thought that he could get what he needed. He went to the high places. And at this point in the narrative of the Old Testament, the high places is not um, an altar to a foreign god. It was an altar to the God of Israel. There were several of them that were run by these Levitical families where they could present offerings before the temple was constructed. And so uh, Solomon went to Gibeon, one of these high places, and he brought his offering and offered thousands of animals as a sacrifice to God. And then he falls asleep. And this happens when he brings that question to God, what should I do and how should I lead the people? Uh, if you're in your Bible, open up to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're at. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3, and then we're going to be in Proverbs later. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness 
in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people to me to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? So Solomon falls into a dream. God says, ask what you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon says... God, you've been so great, and you've been faithful to my family. You even let me succeed my father, which is a great joy to my family. And so here's what I want. I want a great mind to understand to govern your people. I want to receive and understand what you understand so that I can do this thing. Now, in, in Hebrew, um, Solomon does not ask for wisdom. He literally asks for an understanding mind. That's not the word that we use for wisdom, um, but many have translated that as wisdom, but that's not the words that are used there. It's, it's a literal translation, an understanding mind. And then this is what God says. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself a long life or riches or to kill your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. Now, this word wise here is, is the word chokmah, and the word chokmah is not, um, it's not about your brain. It's literally about being a great, um, a great follower. It's, it's, it's used for artisans in the way that they learn to do something really well. Chokmah is used to describe um, when someone like has has shaped their life in a way that is in alignment with God. It's literally this idea where you are in the stream of what God is doing. You're joining into the designed and created order of God, and you're living within the way that he had set it out. And this is the gift that God gives to Solomon. Behold, I give you a wise chokmah and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commands as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he made a feast for all of his servants. And what Solomon did was he, he invited God to give him what he needed to rule well, and then God gave him that and more. God gave him wisdom. God gave him understanding. And then God gave him riches. God gave, like literally Solomon ushers in the age of Camelot in Israel. He is meant to be the pinnacle and will be the, until the kingdom is reestablished on earth again in the end times, Solomon will be the pinnacle of Israelite strength, power, wealth, and influence in the world. This is the golden age of Israel. And so what I want to do 
I, I want, we're going to watch a video here in a second of the book of Proverbs because we're going to be diving into 1 Kings and talking about the age of the kings. But I want to I dive in because the age of Camelot, this, this, this uh, golden age of Israel that is ushered in, is ushered in because Solomon starts to live in this chokmah of God. He literally takes the kingdom of Israel and invites them to walk in alignment with the kingdom ways of God. And when they do that, God blesses them in such a way that they will look back on this time as the time that they had always hoped for Israel to be. And then Solomon, he was the wisest man on earth is what the, the Bible says. And Solomon then compiled and shared the wisdom that he had written and that he had compiled from other authors. And he wrote this book, Proverbs. Um, and it's really about what he calls the Lady Chokmah. Uh, not like personified in the sense that Lady Chokma is a person, but uh, that's the way that the book is written. Um, so let's watch the Bible Project video and then we'll jump into it. The Book of Proverbs. The word proverb typically refers to a short, clever saying that offers some kind of wisdom, and this book has a lot of those. But they're almost all in the center section of the book, chapters 10 to 29. But there is way more going on in the book of Proverbs, especially at the beginning, chapters 1 through 9, and the conclusion, chapters 30 and 31. The book's been designed with an introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and it first of all links this book to King Solomon. Now remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon had asked God for wisdom to lead Israel well. And so Solomon became known as the wisest man in the ancient world. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he wrote thousands of proverbs and poems and collected knowledge about plants and animals. So Solomon was like the fountainhead of Israel's wisdom literature. So while not all the material in this book is written by him personally, he is where Israel's wisdom tradition began. The introduction says that by reading this book, you too can gain wisdom. Now wisdom for most of us means knowledge, but the Hebrew word chokhmah means much more than just mental activity. It refers to action also. So think skill or applied knowledge. This is why back in the book of Exodus, chapter 31, it was artists and craftsmen in Israel who were said to have chokhmah. So the purpose of this book is to help you develop a set of practical skills for living well in God's world. And this gets linked with another key idea in the introduction, the fear of the Lord. Now fear here is not about terror. It's about a healthy sense of reverence and awe for God and about my place in the universe. It's a moral mindset that recognizes I am not God and that I don't get to make up my own definitions of good and evil and right and wrong. Rather, I need to humble myself before God and embrace God's definition of right and wrong, even when that's inconvenient for me. Now this introduction leads us into the first main section of the book, chapters 1 through 9, which also doesn't contain short one-liner proverbs. Rather, what we find here are 10 speeches from a father to a son about how the son should listen to wisdom and cultivate the fear of the Lord and live accordingly, which means a life of virtue and integrity and generosity, all of which lead to success and peace. And the father warns his son also about folly and evil and stupid decisions that will breed selfishness and pride, all leading to ruin and shame. And so the son should make the pursuit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord his highest goal in life. And this way of thinking, it forms the moral logic of this entire book. 
Now, these speeches from the Father also clue us into what biblical wisdom literature is and how it's different from other parts of the Bible. These books explore how to live well in God's world, but wisdom is not the same as law, like what Moses gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's not the same as prophecy, divine speech to God's people. Rather, wisdom literature has the accumulated insight of God's people through the generations about how to live in a way that honors God and others. And so, through the book of Proverbs now, these human words about wisdom have been put together as God's word and wisdom to his people. Which connects to the other thing you find in chapters 1 through 9. There are four poems from Lady Wisdom. Here, wisdom has been poetically personified as a woman who calls out to humanity to pay attention and to seek her. Wisdom says that she is woven into the fabric of the universe. And so wherever you see people making wise decisions, they are relying on her. So you see someone being generous or having sexual integrity or upholding justice. They are drawing on wisdom. These Lady Wisdom poems, they're a creative, poetic way of exploring this idea that we live in God's moral universe and that goodness and justice are objective realities that we ignore to our own peril. And so fearing the Lord, living wisely, it's living along the grain of the universe. Now together, these two sets of speeches from the Father and Lady Wisdom, they make a powerful claim about this book, that you're not simply reading good advice. You're reading God's own invitation to learn wisdom from previous generations. And so in the next section of the book, chapters 10 through 29, we find hundreds of ancient proverbs, and they apply wisdom and the fear of the Lord to every life topic you could imagine. Family, work, neighborhood, friendship, sex, marriage, money, anger, forgiveness, alcohol, debt, everything. And these are all filtered through the value system of Proverbs 1 through 9. Now these Proverbs, they're all pretty short. They're easy to memorize. And actually this section of the book is meant to become a reference work that you return to time and time again throughout the years, which raises some important issues in learning how to read these Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs are by nature about probabilities. So you fear the Lord and you make wise, good choices things will likely go well for you. And if you don't fear the Lord, you're foolish, your life will likely not go so well. Now, that is all often true, but not always. Which leads to the next point, that Proverbs are not promises. They're not formulas for success. So, some Proverbs, for example. The fear of the Lord prolongs your life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Or, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't turn from it. So yes, fearing God, being a moral person, will most likely lead to a better, longer life. And raising your kids in a stable, loving home does set them up well. But there are no guarantees. Lots of things can and often do go wrong in our world. And so lastly, Proverbs by nature focus on the general rule, but not the exceptions, which are many. And the wisdom books actually aren't ignorant of that. The exceptions are what the other wisdom books, Job and Ecclesiastes, are all about. And together, these acknowledge that life is too complex for simple formulas, which is why we need all of the wisdom books together to get the bigger picture. This all leads to the final section of the book, two large collections of poems. First, poems from a man named Agur, who begins by acknowledging his own ignorance and folly and his great need for God's wisdom. 
And then Agur discovers that divine wisdom has been given to him in the scriptures, which teach him how to live well. And so Agur is put before us as like a model reader of the book of Proverbs, somebody who's always open to hearing God's wisdom through the scriptures. The final poems are connected to a man named Lemuel. He's a non-Israelite king, and he passes on the wisdom that was given to him by his mom. It's guidance for being a wise and just leader. And then the final poem is an acrostic or an alphabet poem where each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the entire poem is about the woman of noble character. It depicts a woman who lives according to the wisdom of Proverbs and stands like a model of someone who takes God's wisdom and then translates it into practical decisions in everyday life, at work or at home, in her family and in her community. So the book opened with words from a father to a son about listening to Lady Wisdom, and so now the book closes by offering the words of a mother to her son about a woman who lives wisely. The book of Proverbs is for every person in every season of life. It's a guide for living wisely and well in God's good world, and that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. All right, so Proverbs is a cool book, but it's a kind of a weird book because it's so different than the rest of the Bible. You've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are the whole of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and it's meant, and actually James is a part of that um, wisdom literature tradition in the New Testament, um, but they're, they're meant literally as a gift from God. But I, I, I want to dive into, like I think S Solomon in particular He's, he's wise to start. Like as a young man, he's wise enough to ask God for wisdom. He's wise enough to know that wisdom emanates from God and that he can't get it on his own, and he goes to God for wisdom. And so I want to I state that wisdom starts with God's invitation and his, his calling to us. And so when we want to participate and to walk with God, and we move towards him, it's because he's invited us, and we have, we have responded by faith to his calling. And when Solomon comes and he asks God for wisdom, God gives him wisdom, but that wisdom is not just for himself. It's meant to be a gift for the people of Israel. The wisdom that emanates from the Spirit into Solomon is so that he would rule well and teach the people of Israel what it's like to live in this new sort of kingdom way. And that's why God blesses and takes care of Israel. He makes Jerusalem into a great city. He's the one who finishes building the walls and the um, palace in Jerusalem. He's the one who starts and finishes the entire temple on the temple mount that will be the house for God to dwell among his people in the holy of holies for the next generations and Solomon is the perfect one to embody this wisdom not because he didn't make mistakes because both Solomon and David are flawed characters um, later in life uh, what you'll see when we watch the first kings video is that um, Solomon takes on all these foreign wives and is not faithful to God in the end and starts to create this, um, this uh, syncretism between the foreign gods of his wives and Yahweh, and he doesn't follow God his entire life. But in the beginning of his life, he walks with God and God blesses Israel. And I think that a part of that is they, Israel needed to have a good old days to point back to. 
At this point, Israel's never had the good old days. They've just had struggle and strife. This is the first generation where they have finally taken power and control over Canaan. David establishes for the first time in the history of Israel that they have a land. God had built them as a people in the desert after 400 years in slavery. And before that, they were a people who were sojourners for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so Israel... At this time, God blesses them and sets them up and establishes them so that God could remind them of what he's promised them. This isn't the fulfillment of the kingdom promise. This is a taste, a foretaste of the kingdom that will be established forever. But I think that what God's doing in the time of Solomon is he's giving them just a little bit of it. So that they start to, when they start to stray later, when they go into exile later, when they come out of exile, they're looking for a messianic king in the line of David, hoping for the good old days to come back. Now, they, of course, Israel never really gets what God's doing, and they don't get what the good old days are for. But this is a part of the plan, is for God to establish himself and to show that he is king over all the nations. To show that God can establish this tiny little family as a world power who has, you know, really Israel was set up to be a world power because it's this massive trading route along the Mediterranean between three continents. It is perfectly situated to be incredibly wealthy, to be incredibly important to the, the, uh, the merchandising of the entire Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. And that's what's going on here is Israel's becoming what it was meant to be and how God wanted to establish them. So that when Israel was looking for restoration, they could point back and remember the kingdom that God had established under David's line. And they would look forward again later to God establishing that same line again. Now, when we talk about wisdom, I was thinking about how I, how I think about wisdom. And I think that I used to think about wisdom like it was a, it was like an add-on feature. Like it wasn't a part of the essential operating system of life, but it was like, if you were good at life, then you could like ascend to this next level and become a wise person. Like it was, uh, I kind of think of it like flossing, okay? So everybody brushes, right? Don't tell me if you don't, but like everybody brushes. Everybody knows you got to brush a couple times a day, make sure to keep the plaque off your teeth. And all of us know that it would be a good idea if we flossed every day, right? We know that that's like a a nice thing. And the dentist, when he sees your bloody gums, he goes, good job. You know, like he he wants to like approve that. But then most people I know are not regular flossers. It's like this like add-on bonus. Like if you want to be a really good, you know, hygienic person, then you're going to do that. I think that that's the way that a lot of us imagine wisdom, where we're, we start with, well, I was a sinner, and I entered into God's kingdom through salvation, and now I'm a saint, so I'm in, and now I'm just going to kind of muddle along and hope to get better, and there's some people who are really good at this Jesus thing, and they're kind of wise, and they rely on the Spirit, and maybe they're like pastors, or like they've, they've achieved this like second level, but that's not necessary. That's like, it's like flossing. But that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is literally seeing and understanding how God has made all things and entering into it in alignment with what God is doing. 
And so wisdom is this essential part of being a follower of God. If you are a follower of God, you will humbly seek out wisdom. Um, I, I've, I've met a lot of people who, who've read Proverbs like every day for years and years, and they're not particularly wise people. And I've always wondered like what's the like, what's the correlation between people who, like, want to read Proverbs every day and people who aren't very wise? And I think it's this. I think that people think of Proverbs as a, as a way to get wealth and as a way for their lives to go well. They see it as this quid pro quo where if they read these aphorisms by this rich, smart guy, then they'll learn to think like this rich, smart guy. It's kind of like they're, they're imagining it like the secret. Like if I just wish in the world and do, like read these things every day, something magical will happen inside of me. But they're reading it like it's a, a magic formula. And that's not what Proverbs is. As, uh, what we saw is that Proverbs is literally learning to walk in the way of God's wisdom, in the way of God's kingdom connected to God in the stream of how he made all things. And, and we see the fulfillment of that in 2 Corinthians when he says that God is in the business of reconciling to himself all of creation. And that's where God's wisdom comes to life in us is when we're reconciled to him, we enter into the wisdom of God. We all of a sudden have access to his wisdom. Um, so we need wisdom. We need the wisdom of God more than ever. And, and I think that it, I'm going to get into like what Proverbs says about wisdom, but it starts with desiring God. It doesn't, it doesn't start with desiring wisdom. And that's why I think that people who read Proverbs every day and don't get wise, they don't get wise, is because they're looking for the benefit of it without looking for the thing itself. They think that the benefit of wisdom, which is, for the most part, wealth and stability and good relationships is something that they want and they desire. So they go after the thing, the benefit of it, rather than the thing itself. And the, the thing itself, wisdom, is literally God's presence transforming us in who we are. We saw that in David and we saw that in Solomon, that when they entered into and humbled themselves before God and said, I want to do what you want, that was when their lives started to be transformed into the way of the kingdom. And we need the wisdom of God more than ever. That's why I wanted to start with that question of what's the one thing that we could change to make the world better. I literally think it's, it's seeking after wisdom for ourselves and inviting others to seek after wisdom because this way of being that's described in Proverbs and described in the Bible of walking in the wisdom of God is literally the things that will transform our families. It will make us into good fathers. It will make us into great moms. It will make us into people who take the resources from God and use them in God's ways for God's purposes. It will turn us into humble, listening generous people. That's why the wisdom of God is so essential. It's not this add-on thing that's just a nice thing to add. It is essential to who we are. And the foolishness of this world has been dis disguised as wisdom. This world is full of really bad advice. 
just ask a question on Facebook. Does anybody like on their neighborhood Facebook group and see people like asking for advice on there and you're like, no, don't do it. Those, be- those people are idiots. Don't, don't listen. Like I, I'm, uh, I, there's a Boise bench dwellers group and a West bench group and it is really entertaining, but it really takes away your faith in humanity. Listening to them talk about, yeah, all sorts of things. But this foolishness of the world is disguised as wisdom, and it's seeping into us as the church. Our world says that what we desire is who we are, that our identity is built by our flesh seeping out into the world through desire and through lust. And so we're nothing more than these hormonal urges that must be satisfied to be our authentic self. It leads to the hedonism of drug use, of of disordered sexual desires. We we become these selfish and foolish creatures seeking that next hit of dopamine that we find from selfishly pursuing our next pleasure adventure. That's what the world says it means to pursue wisdom, is to become your authentic self by following your desires. This is not wisdom. The wisdom of the world says that you are nothing more than just stardust and atoms randomly arranged through creative genetic mutations into a creature who has no meaning other than that we create and seek pleasure. And this leads, when we see no sense of us being connected to something greater than ourselves, it leads to crippling depression and ennui, this deep sense that we're disconnected from this world and each other in meaningful ways, that we have no purpose in this world. This is what the world calls wisdom. The world says that foolishness is righteousness, that sexual promiscuity and personal expression are our highest values, that there is no external authority that we're subject to, that the world is meant to be this anarchic revolution of radical individualism and expressive individualism that leaves us lonely and scared and confused about how to pursue the good life. This world says that foolishness is righteousness. The wisdom of this world is 180 characters of petulant self-promotion, using the bully pulpit of social media to broadcast our hatred, our foolishness, our lack of historical historical awareness onto an unsuspecting world. The world says that we must speak, and our voice is the most important thing that we have, so we are quick to speak, and we're even quicker to anger. And the world tells us that who we are is what we say, And the wisdom of this world is easy credit and low interest rates and payday lenders and reverse mortgages and all sorts of schemes that lead to financial ruin. The wisdom of this world is walk through Barnes & Noble. There's still a few around. Walk through Barnes & Noble. There's literally a whole stack, like almost a, a length of books that are all about feeding your desire to not work. Literally, it says that the... In this world, the highest ideal you can manage is a four-hour work week. It's independent wealth so that you can find pleasure through adventure and travel. There's hundreds and thousands of books written to feed this desire, and it says this is the wisdom of our world. The wisdom of our world says that there is no truth. There's nothing verifiable. You create your own reality by consuming and creating your own faith in your own news sources. None of that is true. 
Not a word of it is, but this is the essential culture that we swim in as God's people. It's meant as like a bad counterfeit of wisdom. It uses our lust for power and pleasure, for control and autonomy, to drive a wedge between us and God, between us and each other. And there's, this is crazy. I, I've known people who read the Bible for the same reason. They're assuming that if, if they get this kind of secret Gnostic knowledge, then they can be freed from the shackles of normal life, and they can pursue pleasure because they've, they've learned the secrets of good living. And this sort of worldly foolishness is not just out there. It's the air that we breathe day in and day out. These are the assumptions for our conversations, the framework for our relationships. They've seeped into the life of God's people. So when we read these worldly foolishness, we must reject their premises and embrace the wisdom of God. The church must be set apart from these lies and in peculiarity embrace a different kind of way of being human with chokmah in the stream and the power of God's wisdom. And there is real wisdom in God's word. And we must pursue this wisdom if we want to participate in this true and beautiful and transformational kingdom age that started with Jesus and it will be fulfilled with his return. And the beginning of wisdom is not desire. It's not the self. The beginning of wisdom is not knowledge or understanding. The beginning of wisdom is not even a contemplative life, hoping and waiting and listening. The beginning of wisdom is actually the same beginning that we have in the Jesus age in the way that we start our walk with God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I like the way he described the fear of the Lord. It's like a healthy respect. But I think that um, it's that same phrase is basically changed in the New Testament into a different phrase. And it's the phrase that, um, that we use as literally the center of our faith here at Redemption Hill and in the Christian community, and it's this phrase. Jesus is Lord. This is the center of fearing God, is that we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Really, it's a recognition of the rule and the reign of Christ as the one true king who has the only and complete right to tell you how to live. Because he created all things, he redeemed all things, he died for all people, and he'll reign from now and forever in all ways. He's the only one who has the right to tell us how to live in this sort of hulkma way. And so when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, what we're really saying is that Jesus is creator, that he is king, and that he is the only one who has the right to tell us what our lives are should live like. And now we, we're still in this time where God's kingdom has come through Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's not yet driven the enemy away. The enemy is still present in its weakened state, still trying to drive a wedge between us and God, but God is waiting and he's hoping for more to be reconciled to him before the end. And so there's, there's in, in this time, what he talked about in the video is that God's, God's wisdom, Hulkman, does not equal the law. And what he's saying is that if you, if you do what the proverb says and you live in this kingdom way of Hulkman, you will not necessarily get all the blessings of Solomon. That's a heresy. What happens is, 
in, in probability, the majority of people who walk in the way of God will live a good life that's free of unnecessary conflict and pain. But there is some conflict and pain and suffering that's just necessary to the life of the kingdom age mixed in with the worldly age. And there's going to be some people, especially the prosperity gospel folks who are coming along saying, if you just believe, if you just do what God says, there's a direct correlation between what you believe and how you live and what God will do for you. And if you put your faith in God, he will give you riches and he'll give you glory and he'll make you famous. If you just send in $20 a month in four easy installments, that's, that's an easy way to go when, when we're trying to be simple about this thing. But what Proverbs says is that in probability, if you walk in this chokmah, this kingdom wisdom way, you're not going to be adding stupid pain to your life. We all have stupid pain, right? The stupid pain of I make a bad decision and I live with the natural consequences. Um, my son the other day, he threw something against the wall, and it came back and hit him in the head. I didn't even need to tell him not to do it, right? Like, it, the wall literally told him not to throw things at the wall because it hits you in the face. The world is that way, and some of you think that your suffering is because of this world is a hard place. No, your suffering is because you're dumb. And your suffering is because you're not living in the chokmah of God's way and you haven't given yourself over to God. And some of you, your suffering is just a legitimate expression of the brokenness of this world. And you need to recognize that God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Okay? But the wisdom of God transforms us. Reconciled to God through the kingship of Jesus' reign, we will ultimately, in the next age, experience the true, full expression of the wisdom of God in the coming kingdom. We start with this central confession. Jesus is Lord. We recognize that he is Yahweh, that Jesus is the king, that he is the only one who has the right. We recognize his authority in our lives to direct our lives and, and we start to see clearly that if we walk in the way of Jesus, we're walking the way of the creator who made all things and understands all things and knows all things. And he gave us this instruction manual for these bodies in this life with original equipment manufactured into us. And he understands it. And so we take his instruction and we live in his way so that we can optimize the life that God's given us. But this confession, Jesus is Lord, is also a loyalty pledge. It's equal to all hail the king. When we say Jesus is Lord, what we're really saying is I will shape my life in light of him. And so the beginning of wisdom is to recognize this rule and reign of Christ. Admit that you're not your own and that you need Christ for life and salvation, for wisdom. And it's also because you're not on your own to become the kind of person that God made you to be. So often when we think about wisdom, we think, well, I need to read Proverbs, and I need to do these things every day, and if I do, then I'll get what God wants for me. And I just got to try harder every day. I got to read it. I got to make sure that I'm doing what God said. I got to work my debt snowball just like Dave Ramsey told me so that I am free of debt just like Proverbs says. And I need to make sure that every day I'm disciplining my children because Proverbs says to discipline my children. And if I just do all these things just the right way, then my life is going to work out. But what we find is that both in David and in Solomon and in God's people, 
the power for living in this kingdom age is not born out of ourselves, but it's a gift of the Spirit. What John 16 says is that the Spirit will guide you into all truth, that the Holy Spirit will empower you for good works. And so when we're trying to do this chokma thing, it's not so much a matter of white-knuckling it into this kingdom way, but in allowing God to give his power to us and his wisdom to us so that we can walk in the way. We're going to need something beyond ourselves because day in, day out, we're not going to remember what the proverb says, but we're going to know what question to ask. And the question we ask for chokma is this. It's not what do I want. It's not what feels good. It's not what does alleviate my pain. Holkma comes from asking this question. What does God want? This needs to be the question that drives every part of our lives. If he is the king, then our whole lives are going to revolve around asking the question, what does God want? And I guarantee you, in every moment, if you ask that question and you do what you think God wants, you're living in Holkma. You're living in the wisdom of God because you're concerned with what is good, what is just, and what is right, and what is the kingdom way versus what makes me feel good, what takes away stress from me, what keeps me looking good to other people, what do I feel like doing? Those are the questions that your body's just going to throw at every situation. You're going to have these hormonal desires to protect yourself or to please yourself. And you've got to throw those aside and focus in and asking the one crucial question. What does God want? I think that you should read the Proverbs every day. I think that in there you should learn some key kingdom principles. And what I've done this week is I've kind of, I've broken those down into like a list of kind of bigger themes. That This is something you should write down as I go through it. So if you've got notes... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit nine things that I think are just key kingdom principles um, that are born out of these 20 chapters of Proverbs that, we're, that we are covering. So get ready. It's coming like a fire hose. The first, God's wisdom comes from asking, what does God want? It's the fear of the Lord. Um, so do that constantly. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that I like to ask if, I, if I'm trying to figure out what God wants, does anybody know who Immanuel Kant is? He had this famous idea of what moral goodness is, and it is called the categorical imperative. Matt knew it. Categorical imperative. Here's what the categorical imperative is. If everybody acted this way, what would happen in the world? That's how you know if something is good or evil. If everybody acted the same way you acted, is the world a better place or a worse place? Now, if you ask, is this a good thing to do, you could come up with some way that it benefits somebody almost all the time. You can justify almost any action, and I have justified almost every action to myself of how it could be good. But the categorical imperative says if everybody acts the same way, does it it resolve into a better world or a worse world? And that's how you know. And so what it forces you to do is think about the consequences of your actions. So ask, what does God want, and what's the, re- what's the cost of my action to the world? And then act in a way that brings God glory, brings joy to others, and takes care of the people around you. Okay? So that's number one. Number two, what you desire 
is who you are becoming, so you must take captive every thought and desire in your body, okay? So basically, half of Proverbs is saying, don't follow your instincts. Your instincts are bad. They will always lead to destruction. And so you have to take thoughts captive. You have to take feelings captive. You have to take responsive captive. And you you have to ask, is this coming and emanating from an evil place inside of me or from outside of me? Or is it coming from God? And so it starts with just being aware of your life and being responsible for your actions in relation to the things that come out of you. And so we pursue things that bring human flourishing to ourselves and to others. And we say no to things that bring death and destruction. Okay? Number three, humility is essential to wisdom. Why? Because proud people can't learn, and people who can't learn are bad people. Okay? Proud people can't learn. People who don't learn are bad people. Okay? Wisdom can only come through from humility by putting ourselves underneath others and underneath God. And so we learn to listen to God from what he says and what he wants for us. You're putting these up there. Nice job, Matt. All right. Okay. Number four. Choose community over isolation. There's proverb after proverb after proverb about preferring the other and preferring relationship over isolation. How relationship breeds flourishing. Now, this is an essential kingdom principle that we think we are meant to be peculiar people at Redemption Hill because we live connected in community as a family. It's a kingdom way, and it brings not only joy and some pain, but it also brings flourishing because when we live deeply connected with others, God cares for us through these relationships. So it's a vital part of God's kingdom way. Number five, hard work is essential to walk in the way of wisdom. Okay? Learn to love work because you were made for work. Okay? There was work in the garden before the fall. There will be work in the new kingdom alongside God. We all have work, and work is what we were made for. So when we embrace the work that God has for us and we learn to work well, we find joy even in the midst of hardship and suffering. It's a part of almost every chapter in Proverbs. There's something about learning to work and setting aside laziness. Because laziness literally says to the people around you, you're responsible for my needs. I'm going to make you take care of me. Okay? You have to learn to work if you want to walk in the kingdom way. And most of these things, unless you work at them, they won't become a part of you. So you really can't even pursue wisdom until you humble yourself before God and then take on the ownership of working and transforming over time. Okay, number six. Truth brings life. Lies bring destruction. Truth is the only way to live in God's kingdom. If you don't like truth, God literally says you cannot belong in his kingdom. Truth is the only language of God. And so lies are the 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 first language of Satan and his kingdom. And so if you cannot set aside your lies and embrace truth, you cannot walk in the kingdom way. Number seven, by faith, live within the bounds of God's sexual ethic. Throughout all of Proverbs, and I think particularly in this age, most people who are Christians will say, sure, I love what God says, as long as you don't want to touch my sexual ethic. As long as you don't want to question my relationship with this person. As long as you don't want to question the way that we talk about 
how people live in their sexuality. The world says nothing matters with our bodies. Our bodies are meaningless. They have no purpose other than pleasure. And so we find pleasure anywhere we want. But by faith, wisdom is embracing the design God's given us for these bodies. And now all the kids are in the room, so I can't really talk about it. <laughs> but this is a vital part where we, we submit to God's authority. Not because we want to invent some new way of being human, but because God understands us better than anybody else. Number eight, deny your flesh, delay gratification. You cannot pursue wisdom if you're always pursuing gratification. They're literally worlds apart, okay? So deny yourself, delay gratification if you want to discover wisdom. And number nine is my favorite, shut your mouth and listen. Shut your mouth and listen. It's yo, yo mouth. Um, it's funny for a preacher to say that because I've just been talking for 40 minutes. But uh, the, whole, the whole book's basically like you cannot learn unless you shut your mouth. And unless you shut your mouth, you can't listen. So shut your mouth and listen, okay? If you're a talker, learn to be quiet. If you don't like to talk, you're doing good and people think you're smarter than you are. Just keep at it. That's, what, that's literally what Proverbs says, okay? All right, lastly, before we go, wisdom does not come with age. It's a, that's a myth and a lie of our culture. Look around you. There's just as many fools in their 70s as there are fools in their 40s. The only way to get wisdom is by pursuing it. It's by walking in God's way over time. Wise 40-year-olds become really wise 70-year-olds. Foolish 40-year-olds can still become wise 70-year-olds if they transform the way that they interact with the world and pursue God. And that's where I want to end. I want to read. Would you stand with me? We're going to read Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 15. I'll read it to you, but I want to read it as a prayer because I think it's, it's a fitting ending to this, and I'll invite the, the worship team to come forward. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and walking over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge, chokmah, will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, for who forsake the paths of uprightness, who walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Lord God, let us be a people who seek your wisdom, who look to walk in your ways, and as a community are transformed so that everywhere we go, we bring this flourishing chokmah, living in the stream of your wisdom as kingdom people. God, as I have read through Proverbs this week, I've had a lot to repent for. There's areas of my life. There's areas of the way that I steward my time and my money and my words. 
even ways that my attitudes keep me from walking with you. Lord God, give us hearts of repentance to turn away and to turn towards you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have complete control in us, to give us what we need, the power we need to walk in your way. Lord God, have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fear is changed.